This is episode number 36 of the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Raboy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. In this episode, I'm with Upkar Litter from IBM, and we're gonna be talking about machine learning and how to do it when it comes to development, data science, AI, just various relevant topics when it comes to uh, the job market nowadays. If you're looking for content related to this particular episode, uh, head over to the Polyglot Developer blog. So if you go to thepolyglotdeveloper.com, you can read up on a lot of great tutorials. Uh, you can uh, get links to YouTube videos that I've recorded, other podcast episodes, uh, just all around good stuff when it comes to learning about different technologies. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, I'm with Upkar Litter from IBM, and we're gonna be talking about machine learning in this particular podcast episode. But before we get into the bulk of the episode, I wanna give Upkar a chance to introduce himself. So how you doing, Upkar? Hi, Nick, um, I'm very happy to be here today. And uh, uh, hello, everybody who's listening. Um, I, uh, I work with IBM, I'm a developer advocate, and I focus on machine learning and artificial intelligence solutions that we have to offer, and also a lot of open source solutions. So how, how, how did you get into the kind of realm of, of machine learning? What, what kind of interested you in this subject material? Um, for me, it was, um, you know, I, I, before picking up the developer advocacy role, I was working with a lot of uh, clients uh, through IBM and machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. A lot of it was pure magic to me. Uh, and so I am, you know, I'm, I'm that kind of person who, uh, wants to see what's behind the magic. Uh, and so while working on a couple of projects that in, involve predicting, um, uh, you know, I, I can't go into the details of the project, but it, it, it was essentially predicting if a uh, high school student would, how they would do on a specific subject uh, a couple of years down the road. And that was pure magic to me. And I wanted to understand that more. So I got together, you know, reached out to the data science team, um, and, and basically started learning from there. And I got really interested after that in chatbots and, um, the whole NLP side of uh, machine learning and AI. I'm sure that education type use case is huge, right? Uh, being able to predict if, if somebody's going to do well, um, given the major that they chose maybe, right? Absolutely. Our use case was based on, uh, a number of factors or attributes, uh, uh, for example, you know, their historical academic record of the student, their aptitude, uh, even going into, you know, some information like how many classes have they missed, um, demographic information, all of those features um, uh, were input into this model that would help teachers and help uh, automate the process of, you know, uh, based on the the kids' uh, learning style, offer them the material that would help them the most. Awesome. Do you think that this, uh, I mean, I maybe it's a sensitive subject, but do you think this kind of uh, material or this kind of uh, practice would be good for admissions, like getting into universities? Like, hey, this student applied for such and such subject. Maybe they're not a good fit based on uh, the the material that this this machine learning calculated, right? Right, exactly. So, so I don't think it's a question of if or when. I think it's it's it already is happening. A lot of uh, a lot of decisions that are made by universities in terms of admission or giving out student loans or 
uh, uh, sponsoring sure. students actually, I think, already have inputs from machine learning models. And you're absolutely right in that it is a very sensitive topic and you know it affects our lives in more ways than one. Uh, and so we have to be very cognizant of that fact and be careful when working yeah. with these models. So I guess before we even go down this kind of rabbit hole on, on these different use cases, why don't we take a step back? And so when somebody's talking about just machine learning, when somebody brings that up, what to you, what does that mean? That's, that's a good question. So it means a lot, a lot of things to different folks. I understand that it's a very vague uh, sort of term. Um, but for me, essentially, it means uh, having machines or computers uh, take some decision on our behalf or at least have an input into our decision making. And a lot of times that may look like, uh, for example, finding hidden patterns uh, or not so obvious patterns in some sort of data set, uh, right? So you're learning from your data and then hopefully be able to generalize that enough to uh, make predictions on unseen data. Um, also, when, you know, when folks talk about uh, uh, machine learning, that you know, that's my general sense of it. But then there are subcategories that folks talk about, for example, uh, you know, there are models that are built with supervised learning uh, versus unsupervised learning. Uh, and we can go into into details as well. Yeah, I definitely want to. Uh, so when somebody when, when somebody's talking about machine learning, is that I mean, I, I often hear at least personally, I, I, I could be and you can say, hey, this is totally silly. Are people talking about AI and data science in the same category or are they totally different subjects? Well, I wouldn't say they are totally different subjects. I think they are very much complementary. Um, I, the first, you know, when you search these terms on the internet, the first picture usually that shows up is that Venn diagram with the artificial intelligence being the bigger uh, sure. circle, and then within that you have machine learning as one way possibly to achieve artificial intelligence, uh, and then data science is a very crucial part of machine learning because everything starts with data. Without data, there essentially is no machine learning. So they are, they are all related to each other. I wouldn't say they're completely separate. Um, sure. But yes, it is confusing to talk of these different roles and um, sort of subcategories of artificial intelligence. So when we're talking today, then we're, we're talking most strictly about just machine learning as a whole then, right? Not, not over AI, not over data science, um, even though that they're kind of loosely related, right? Correct. I, I, it's very hard to talk about just one of these without including some aspect yeah. of the other. Yes, correct. Sure. So um, let's let's talk about maybe maybe we can go back down your personal story on how you got into machine learning. But say say I'm uh, learning development or programming, or I'm in a computer science program. How does one get into machine learning? Is this something that you specifically have to focus on in school, or something that you got to study very hard on? To get into? Um, so that's a really good question. And uh, I think it's also relevant to not just machine learning data science, but also computer science, right? So I know there have been yeah. debates on, uh, you know, uh, whether you need a four-year four degree program versus a boot camp versus learning on your own. And I think it really depends on uh, your learning style. So I, first of all, uh, I don't think a, a PhD is absolutely necessary to get into uh, machine learning and data science. Uh, what is absolutely necessary is curiosity. So, uh, you know, if you if you see something or see a mo somebody using a model, uh, and you are able to then go to, you know, maybe uh, a, a research paper that talks about it, or maybe to the GitHub 
code repository and start start playing around with that code, start uh, asking the right questions. I think that's a good start and a great way to get into data science and machine learning. And to be frank with you, there's there are so many options online uh, right now. We are very lucky to live in a world where you know we have options like the the massive online courses and you know communities built around data science and AI, whether it be a YouTube channel or a Slack channel, where we can get all this information. So I, I think the biggest obstacle in uh, learning, if you really wanted to learn in data science and AI right now, is is our, this ourselves and uh, not taking that first step to uh, you know to look at any one of these resources. Did you happen to have any personal favorites when it came to these learning resources? Um, I like, uh, there are a couple of courses that I did like uh, on Coursera. Uh, in fact, IBM has a couple of great specializations as well. Um, this, the Stanford co course is uh, particularly well done um, and it goes very deep into uh, artificial intelligence and data science. Uh, but I also like the, uh, there are a couple of weekly newsletters I follow. Uh, one is called Data Science Weekly. You can look it up online. And that essentially, newsletters for me are great because it's, you know, with our day-to-day uh, -day work and everything else, especially if you're a software engineer or a software developer and you're trying to get into AI, but that's not your full-time job. I feel something like that where information is pushed to me is really great uh, versus me going out and having to uh, search for that information. So, yeah. The, and what was this, Data Science Weekly? That is correct. Um, Perfect. I will uh, make sure that that gets included in the notes uh, when we publish this episode. Uh, so now, now I kind of want to kind of exercise your storing storytelling here. I want you to kind of take the listeners on a journey on what it takes to kind of get set up with machine learning. What what's the process? What goes into it to kind of be successful? Where where do you uh, start? You you probably start with the data, but but walk us through it. Right. Well, even I would say even before data, you probably start with some sort of a problem or some sort of um, you know, some sort of an itch you want to scratch, you want to scratch, so to speak. Um, so, you know, there is maybe a, uh, you know, being working with IBM, usually it's a very enterprisey sort of problem we're looking at. Uh, a recent project that I did, we looked at, um, you know, our customer surveys and NPS scores that we get back from these customers. Um, and so the problem was, while well, we're getting all these scores back uh, and some of them are good, some of them are bad. Uh, can we come up with a model that would help us convert detractors, so people who give us less low NPS scores, uh, to net promoters, people who give us high NPS scores? So that's a very concrete business problem that uh, you know affects perhaps revenue or cost optimization or something like that. So in our case, you know it would hopefully lead to happier customers if we were able to come up with a you know with the reasons as to why. Uh, we have detractors that we do have. Yes. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, now this is exciting stuff. Say, so, so, so we're starting with a particular kind of goal that we want to accomplish. How do you even know if that goal is, is appropriate for a machine learning task versus something else? That is a great question. So, um, sorry, I'm putting you on the spot on a lot of things, right? <laughs> this is fine. This is fine. This is absolutely great. Um, I was trying to gather my thoughts so I can say what I want to say very concisely. No worries. Um, so, okay, so the, so the question is, how do you decide if a given problem um, has a machine learning related solution or part of the solution could be machine learning related, right? Yeah, because you don't want to waste, you don't want to spend, put 100 hours into thinking that it's a machine learning problem when it could have been solved uh, with an hour of something else, right? 
Yeah, and that that happens a lot. A lot of times, you know, our as human beings, our intuition or uh, something based on our experience, or you know, the, the thing we call our gut feeling, sometimes that works, and <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. But what data gives us is, you know, the concrete evidence, uh, and we can evaluate uh, our solution based on data. So I would say, um, uh, you know, with machine learning, the versus, uh, you know, other sort of manual solution. Um, first of all, if there is a lot of data, then I think it's kind of hard to, for us, and it's very time consuming and resource consuming to uh, go through all of that data manually. So, so in our case, uh, the data happen to be uh, customer tickets, right? So yeah. support tickets, and there's thousands and thousands of support tickets. What clients do we focus on first? Uh, which ones of those do we filter out so we don't spend a lot of time? A lot of these resource in intensive tasks uh, absolutely, if you can put uh, quote unquote machine learning or even automate some of that, then you know that is very a good start versus doing something like that manually. Um, apart from that, uh, you know we are humans are really good at generalizing stuff. So given a very small set of data, I am uh, and based on my past experience, I'm able to uh, do some predictions really quickly and very fast. Um, but we are sort of not so good at finding hidden patterns in large amounts of data. So if I sure. give you 10,000 different support tickets, um, you know, it's kind of, it'll take us a lot of time to get to those patterns. And, and that's another part where machine learning can help very quickly. Um, so, so I would say, you know, uh, uh, given how easy it is nowadays to, to get started with uh, machine learning, a lot of, a lot of times, we, I'm sure we'll get into that a lot of times, majority of your time is spent on gathering this data, this input data versus actually creating your models and, and running and deploying your models, right? So. so so, we have a particular problem we wanna solve. We know that we have a massive amount of data that's probably not convenient or not, we're not able to do this manually. What's next? All right, so the next, next uh, uh, step in the pipeline usually is to um, you know, somehow get this data uh, in a format that you need, even before that, just getting access to the data. So, uh, for example, I'll give you the example from, you know, that uh, student uh, or the education site we were trying to build. Um, in that case, you were working with school districts across uh, the country, and uh, a lot of times data is stored in, I'm sure you've, you've seen this too, data is stored in multiple databases, legacy databases, a always. lot of times, always, right? And a lot of times it's, you know, the, the different tables sound similar, which one is, you know, more up to date. Uh, you wouldn't believe how much time is spent just working with your domain level expert or working with the client to get to the right data. Uh, so that's, I feel, step number step number one after, you know, step number zero, which is problem identification, is yeah. getting to that data and creating some sort of uh, process to enable automated gathering of that data. Because a lot of times these problems uh, you know, it's uh, it very soon turns into uh, the 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 automation becomes almost uh, like a um, uh, how do I say this? Uh, it becomes very necessary very quickly. Um, so that would be step number, you know, next step. Uh, once you have that data, then there's always you know you have to remember in all of these um, uh, a lot of these projects. You as a data scientist or a software engineer are not experts in that data or in that system. And so you're always working with somebody on the client side, 
So usually, you know, it could be their data science team if they have one, or it could be their IT uh, personnel who give you the right access to the data. So once you have that data, then you want to go and start exploring the data. And as you know, as I'm sure, um, you know, the audience would agree, uh, it's hardly ever the case that the data is absolutely completely clean and in the format that you want it in. Right? I don't think so, I've ever seen a case where it's been cleaner or in the form that I've wanted it. Unless it's the Kaggle competition where, you know, maybe somebody's already massaged that data beforehand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you're right. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so in terms of, uh, in terms of um, you know, uh, a clean versus noisy data, you can have, a lot of times this data is, has been input by a human beforehand, right? So, or yep. nowadays you get a lot of data with a lot of this data from your IoT devices or wearable devices or whatnot, depending on the problem. Uh, and so a lot of times there is da blank data or there is an input error by the humans. Uh, and so the second, the next step after you have access to all this data would be to uh, explore this data, describe this data, verify the quality of this data, get a very intimate understanding of what you're dealing with. Um, so once you're done with that, the next step is data preparation before you build your model, right? So got it. Uh, so in terms of data preparation, think about uh, perhaps uh, normalizing your data. So an example of that would be, let's say I'm predicting house prices. And in this case, my input features into my model uh, could be number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, and perhaps the square footage of the house. Um, and what would happen in that case is your number of bathrooms and bedrooms maybe range from two to five, perhaps, uh, but your square footage would be uh, maybe from a couple of hundred square feet to a couple of thousand square feet. Um, and so the units are completely different on these input features, but your model doesn't care about that. So um, for, for the model to give equal weightage uh, to, you know, for a, a level playing field, so to speak, uh, one thing you, you, you have to do is normalize your data. Uh, another example of data preparation would be, um, you know, these models work with numbers. And so if I have a categorical data input or an attribute, uh, for example, uh, if how close, uh, or if my, if my, if the house is close to, let's say a shopping mall and my category, my uh, answer to that question is yes or a no, or perhaps it's uh, very close or close enough or not so close or and far away, right? So it's categorical data that our model does not understand. And so there are ways to then encode these categories into numerical values, which the model can then understand and work with. So then I have right. a question around this then before we go to the next step. So very numerical based, what about in the example where I'm running surveys or something and I'm allowing for free text? Is there, can you use machine learning to try to, come up with, uh, I don't know, categories based on what people are using in free text? I'd, I'd assume this is the, the same thing on how uh, voice assistants work, right? Or chatbots. You, you're generally not putting numbers in, right? You're putting in actual words. Correct. So uh, you're absolutely right. So there are other ways to deal with uh, textual data. And there's a whole branch of uh, natural language um, understanding uh, that deals with uh, you know natural language and text text and speech data. Uh, so one way, for, I'll give you an example uh, with the NPS score model that we were building internally. Uh, what we decided to do was we said, okay, we have all these uh, 
you know, back and forth between the client and the support engineer. Uh, and one way to look at that would be to look at sentiment analysis or tone analysis between sure. uh, between the client and and the um, you know the, the support person. So that was one way to look at it. Um, so to answer you know answer your question, then uh, you even if you're working with textual data, you still have to encode it. Um, at the end of the day, um, all of uh, or a lot of these machine learning models are dealing with math and vectors, right? Sure. And and matrices. So uh, eventually, you do have to uh, come up with some sort of numerical data. Um, an example being, let's say you want to see how closely two things are related, right? So in a chat application, for example, you have trained your chatbot um, to, if somebody asks uh, about the weather, uh, you have trained the chatbot to uh, uh, answer back if the user is asking, what is the weather like tomorrow? But you also want to answer back if the user says, is it going to rain tomorrow? Because there are similar questions. And so there's a way to uh, uh, figure out similarities between two pieces of text. And there are different kinds of distances that you can use to do that. Um, so without going into details, yes, to answer your question, eventually sure. everything gets converted into some sort of uh, numbers. Got it. All right. So then let's let's continue down this, this line of uh, events. What, what comes after uh, the conversion into some kind of number? All right, so you've got your, you know, you've, you're, you have your problem understanding or uh, problem statement, you have a data acquisition, then you have explored your data, you have a good understanding, uh, and then you do data preparation, in which, in which case you're cleaning, normalizing, transforming data. Uh, after that, now you're at a point where you want to start building your model. Uh, in this case as well, you know, as uh, depending on what kind of problem you're looking at, so you might be looking at a regression problem where you're predicting uh, a numerical value as a result, right? So the example being, how much is this house going to cost if I give you the number of bedrooms, bathrooms, and where it is located? Versus you may be looking at a classification problem where you're saying, um, you know, is this a cat or a dog? <laughs> That's one example. Um, so based on what problem you're looking at or what category of machine learning algorithm you want to use, then you dive into specific models. Um, now, there are tons and tons of models um, and, and or frameworks that you can use to create your model. Uh, but this phase, I call it the model development phase. So this is where you try a bunch of models. And again, based on uh, your experience and your expertise, you might already know that some models work with better with this kind of data or this kind of distribution of data. And so you go to those first. But eventually in this phase, what you want to do is you want to try you know, uh, how many of our models, a dozen, half a dozen models, uh, and then you want to score or evaluate these models. Um, so this is my model development process where I am uh, trying to figure out what model fits best to, to my category of problem, and then, and then try a bunch of models, uh, and then figure out which model is the best for this set of data. Okay, um, so once you do have your model, and, and again, model development is it's not simply just plugging in data into a model and then trying it out. You also have to uh, you know, think about uh, configuration or hyperparameter optimization for each of these models. Uh, you have to think of feature generation, which is uh, the task of generating new features based on existing features. So for example, yes. maybe the number of house, number of bedrooms, or number of bathrooms 
by themselves don't add as much information to my final model as perhaps the product of number of bedrooms and number of bathrooms. So I'm sort of making that up, but that's the idea. Yeah. You're, you're, you're trying to figure out what combination of features would give, give me the most insight into my final target attribute. So that's part of this as well. Now, because I, this is not a subject I, I deal with uh, at all, really. Uh, is this the, are the models the training data, or is or is that something else? Because generally, I think um, I think with machine learning, I hear a lot of like training data or sample data. Is this the models, or is that some is the model something else? So model is something else. So you're uh, when you do data preparation. So I'd actually part right. of creating this model uh, would be to. Now, you probably heard this before, to split your data into testing data and training data. The reason yeah. being, if you know, when you create your model, you want to test it later. And you, would, you don't want to test your model on the data you trained it with. That would be cheating. Sure. <laughs> uh, and so, and so you, you, you keep a little bit of data aside uh, you know, uh, to, for evaluation purposes. So that's your data. And then your model is, uh, uh, I guess, um, how do I say this? Uh, your model is sort of your compiled uh, algorithm set of steps or sure. algorithm that would that you can then use to predict later. Sure. And when you're testing your model, um, you said you've probably already provided it with some some learning data. Uh, do you is this a manual process to make sure that your model is uh, doing what it should to see if it's predicting accurately? Sorry, did I mean, you you're saying is it a manual process? Yeah. So, 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 and, and then if, if I've got a poor understanding of this, uh, just please correct me. Uh, so we have our model, we start providing it data to see if it's to let it do its predictions, right? Correct. Is it, are we clear on that so far? Yes. Yes. So are we providing it more, I guess, data that, that we have like handpicked to make sure that, that it's predicting correctly? before we let it loose in the wild? Or um, at what point do we establish trust in our model? I guess I, I'm, I'm after. Yeah, no, that's 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 a great question. And you're right. So, uh, you know, in, in the step before, in this step, we, we split yeah. our data into testing, um, you know, uh, into training and testing. And that generally you want to randomize that because if, sure. if you hand pick your data so that the model performs well with the data you picked, then again, that would be cheating. Um, I am just you know, using cheating as a as yeah, no funny, funny way to say it. But, um, <laughs> but you're, you, the, the goal is you want your model to do well in the wild on data it has never seen. Sure. And so you, you're kind of trying to mimic that in this uh, process. So you're saying, hey, I'm yeah. training you on this bunch of data. Now you have never seen test data. Go do predictions. I already know the answers for my test data. Got right. It, so so then I can do some evaluations. And, and, and there are multiple ways depending on um, uh, what algorithm or what kind of category of model you're looking at um, for supervised learning, you can say, uh, you know, look at the accuracy or maybe there's something called confusion matrix. Um, I'm sure you've heard of the term. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why it's called confusion matrix, but it absolutely <laughs> is very confusing. Um, so the first time I've actually, look- uh, I've actually never heard of this term before, but that's probably because I'm not, I've, I'm not as deep as you are in the space. Um, and my listeners may or may not be either. Maybe you want to just quickly tell what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, confusion matrix, uh, essentially, uh, it's a way to see, uh, performance on your, on your model based on multiple, uh, um, um, categories, I guess. So, Sure. So uh, essentially what it looks like is on the, it's a table. 
uh, or a matrix. And yeah. on the uh, left-hand side, you have your predicted class. And on the top, you have your actual class. So those are, that's the, the columns are the actual classes. Uh, and, and this is generally used for classification algorithms or models, I should say that, in supervised learning. Um, and so you have your predicted classes on the left, your actual on the top. Uh, and so based on that, you want to see how many times your model gave you a true positive, which yes. means uh, you know, it, it, the, the category was what our model, the actual and predicted were both the same. Um, you, uh, more importantly, you may also want to look at uh, false positive or true negative. Right, so uh, or sorry, false positive or false negative, and and you can probably tell it's it's very confusing. So <laughs> maybe that's where the name comes bit, from. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> All uh, right, but based on these this table, then you have uh, some sort of uh, evaluation criteria that you can come up with, right? So t you can take a ratio of these things, or you can, uh, you know, in in certain situations, you may want less po false positive. It may be, and in other situations, you're okay with getting more false positives, right? So, sure. uh, for example, if it's a medic, if your model is predicting, you know, if somebody has cancer or not, uh, in that case, you don't want to miss out on some uh, some data points, right? So, even if the person does, even if somebody doesn't have uh, a serious medical condition, uh, it's okay to have uh, false positive where you still have them go in and test. It would be more harmful to have a false uh, a negative where you you miss out on on a situation like that, right? So so again, based on your uh, what you're trying to do, based on the model, you can look at these different evaluation metrics. Um, and confusion matrix is just one way of describing the performance of your model in a tabular or a matrix uh, fashion. Got it. So so going back into our kind of pipeline of events, so we left off with the model. Is there anything else as far as our, our stages go? Absolutely. So now that you have developed your model, um, you know, it's maybe it's sitting on my laptop or maybe it's sitting in the cloud in a Jupyter notebook or a Python file. That's all, or, you know, maybe it's uh, serialized to file or to disk. That's all great. But now there are people or teams wanting to use my model. So the next step would be to deploy this model somewhere that other people can reach. Um, and, and that, you know, it's also part of a machine learning engineer's day-to-day -day role would be to uh, ensure that, uh, you know, the mo you're, that you're able to scale up the model um, to the teams that need access to it. Um, there's also, you know, uh, version control. So just like software, you come up with these different models. Uh, you need to be able to track what data was used to create some model uh, to provide some, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, transparency to the whole process, but also then be able to move from one model version to the next model version, a better model version, and then maybe roll, be able to roll back. So there's whole version control aspect to it. Uh, and then even after you deploy it, so you know, model deployment, model management, and, and I would say the next step would be continuous evaluation of this model. So a lot of times people think, here, I, you know, done, I've created this model, um, and, you know, put it on the shelf for people to use. But mostly what happens is uh, data changes, our world changes, our environment changes, our clients change, uh, and which means that we need to be able to constantly test this model with new data that's coming in and, and monitor the performance of this model, right? So there's the whole, yeah. that's the whole feedback loop where you may see the performance of the model going down. Perhaps it's because the data has changed in a way that it's so different from the training data that the model was trained on that model doesn't know what to do with this new unseen data. Yeah. Um, so in that case, you may want to 
retrain it with the new data and then redeploy it. So there's that whole cycle as well. Wow, that's uh, that's intense. Uh, <laughs> is, is it as long and uh, tiresome as 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 maybe we just explained, or is it actually quite simple? Uh, going going real into it as a as a developer. Um, so when you you know when you're going into into it as first of all, um, when you think of data science projects and data science teams, yeah. usually it's made up of a number of different roles. Uh, sure. Data scientists being one of those you know one of those many roles. You also yeah. have um, um, a data engineer. So data engineer, their job may be in the first phase of this pipeline where they are yeah. gathering all of this data. They're making sure it's in the correct format. Uh, and, sure. and reducing noise and stuff like that. Then you have the data scientist who's working with the models. They do have yeah. you know, some programming skills because a lot of these frameworks are maybe written in Python or R. Um, and then you have machine learning engineers who are then ensuring that platform is able to store and host multiple models, ensures there is capacity to serve end users, et cetera. And then finally, you also this is a new role, which is very exciting. Um, uh, maybe maybe not so new, but it's called data journalist. And the data journalist's job is then to work with the domain, uh, you know, the, the client or the expert, uh, and then create uh, perhaps you know like dashboards and KPIs that um, uh, present the findings of your model, right? So there are different sure. roles. So so I would say if you're you know if you're starting out, I know the whole process uh, uh, or the life cycle of a data science project. It seems <laughs> like there are a lot of steps, and there yeah. are. Um, but as a data scientist, it's, you know, if you, again, I'll mention Kaggle again, if you go to Kaggle or we have at IBM, we have a couple of resources. There is a uh, resource called Data Asset Exchange. We have, we have curated uh, data sets that you can go and play with. And it's really easy to, to take one of these data sets uh, and open a Jupyter Notebook and use something like Pandas, perhaps, which is a data sure. exploration library, uh, and start playing with this data. And then, you know, once you start getting interested in it, then maybe you move on to something like Scikit-Learn, which makes it really easy to uh, apply one of these models. Um, so, and, and that's okay, right? That's your, it's your little world where yeah. you're playing with some data, you, you have some findings, maybe you put it up on Medium, maybe you put it up on GitHub as a, as a Python notebook uh, and share it with your friends. And that's a great way to get, way to get, um, sorry, great way to get started without getting into the whole model deployment and management yeah. and performance. So now, now I kind of want to shift gears then. Uh, so we walked through the kind of the life cycle. Uh, where does IBM fit into this? Because I, I know there's IBM Watson, which in my mind, because I'm, I'm kind of old, I guess, uh, Watson is kind of the, the first ever time I was exposed to something kind of AI, machine learning. I, I'm sure it's probably evolved way beyond that. But where does IBM currently fit uh, for a machine learning uh, kind of area of expertise? Yeah, that's a great question. We have some great research going on in this area, obviously. Uh, but from a you know from a consumer point of view or developer point of view, um, IBM fits into all of these different steps in this life cycle, data science life cycle, right? Um, so in terms of data acquisition, uh, there are various kinds of uh, ETL tools that will help you gather this data, clean this data, transform this data. Watson by itself, uh, it's kind of hard to talk about Watson as one thing. There are multiple services. Uh, I think of Watson as an as a umbrella brand with multiple machine learning and AI services sitting inside of Watson. Uh, and so uh, another way to think of it is, uh, depending on your expertise, there are different levels to get into the services provided by Watson or consume them. 
So for example, if I'm a software developer or if I'm an iOS developer and I want to do some uh, natural language processing or I want perhaps I want to do uh, language translation in my application. And so without having to build this model by myself, uh, I actually don't want to do that. I don't want to hire somebody to build something from scratch. There are what I call black box APIs or services on under Watson uh, that will do language translation for you. All you need is an account, you pass it and an endpoint and you send your data uh, with the correct authentication and security and it comes back with the translated data. So that's like the sort of bottom tier to get into some of the services provided by Watson. Um, the second tier, I, I call them the more uh, user-assisted or uh, guided uh, uh, machine learning applications. So we have something called Auto AI, which is amazing. Uh, and what it's trying to do is it's trying to make a lot of these intelligent decisions for you, uh, especially in the model development phase that we talked about. So you have your data and essentially you, you take your Excel file, throw it at Auto AI and say, hey, Auto AI, I want to do a classification problem. Here are some constraints. Here are the metrics I'm looking at. Go to your thing. And the whole the whole manual process or tedious process of then trying out you know, a dozen different models and figuring out what the best model is, you let auto AI do that for you. So, th so that for me, that's sort of um, the second tier to get in where I want to have some control, uh, but I'm okay having Watson take a lot of these decisions for me and come up with the model. And then finally, if I want to do everything from scratch, um, then IBM has a service called Watson Machine Learning which lets me deploy uh, open source uh, uh, machine learning frameworks. So that could be something like scikit-learn or that could be you know, PyTorch or TensorFlow. I can have my own model. I create it locally or create it on the cloud. It doesn't matter. And then for the deployment purposes, I can get handed over to Watson and say, hey, uh, can you please deploy and manage this for me, even though I've created this uh, a custom model on my own. Um, so there, again, there's, depending on where you want to get in, there are different uh, tiers and a lot of dif different services provided on IBM Cloud under the Watson umbrella. That's great. So Upkar, um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience of this podcast? Something maybe uh, you wish you knew when you were starting out, uh, maybe, maybe you want to plug something uh, that you're working on. Totally up to you. Take it wherever you want. Absolutely. So I, uh, one of the things that I was curious about, and I'm getting a lot more into now, and I've given a couple of talks on it, um, and we have done a couple of meetups, is uh, fairness in models and fairness in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, so, you know, the typical example, uh, there's a couple of examples. Um, the one most recently that I'm sure some of the audience have probably ran into on Twitter is uh, DHH, the, the creator of Ruby on Rails. Um, Hopefully I didn't get that wrong. Had, had a tweet <laughs> where had a tweet where uh, you know he he said uh, he was complaining about Apple Card and how his wife got a lot less uh, credit limit even though you know everything is joined and essentially they have the same financial background. Um, yeah. and, and and so you know that was a case where um, it, you know it picked up a lot of steam. And, and I'm not saying that's is you know that is it. At the face of it, it looks like bias. Uh, but maybe it is, maybe it is not. It, it, it definitely started up a conversation, which is the whole idea. Uh, and yeah. so uh, bias is essentially discrimination of a person or a group of people 
uh, but more importantly, it's systematic discrimination over time. And that can happen in your data, that can happen in your models. Uh, yeah. and, and so I would very, very uh, strongly encourage folks that are getting into machine learning and data science. It is not sort of the cool uh, part of data science, but it is a very, very important part that's affecting lives every single day. And so if you get a chance, uh, or, or I, I would like it to be a mandatory course, uh, you know, or, or a, a chapter in the data science book to be aware of the different kinds of biases, how we introduce them. And more importantly, uh, you know, it's hard to completely get rid of them, but how do you mitigate, how do you work around biases in our models in data science? And, awesome. and so just to end that, there is an open source toolkit called AI Fairness 360. Uh, IBM is a contributor, but it is completely com community driven. And it has, um, last I checked, over 70 different metrics, which is amazing, to, uh, of what bias could mean in, in, in artificial intelligence and machine learning models. So I'm going to plug that in. Awesome. No, that's great. Uh, Upkar, this was, this was a great episode. I, I feel like I learned a lot because I, I, I had very little experience prior. So I'm hoping that the listeners get the same result that I got out of it. So a major thanks for coming on this show. Absolutely. Thank you. I, like I said, this, this is my first podcast ever. You made me feel very welcome. Uh, so thank <laughs> you so much. I hope you found the material that Upkar gave valuable when it comes to learning about machine learning. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, it would mean a lot to me if you went into Apple Podcasts or Spotify or some other network that allows for ratings and reviews and lifted a five-star rating and then said something nice about the episode itself. So that way, future listeners, when they stumble upon this podcast, they can get an idea of what they're getting themselves into and whether or not they should sit down and, and listen to each of these 30 or so minute episodes. If you want more great material, like the content on this particular podcast episode, head over to the Polyglot Developer website. I previously mentioned it at the beginning of this podcast episode, uh, but you can find this website at thepolyglotdeveloper.com. And that concludes episode number 36.